Hey friends, welcome to the City Hope Podcast. My name is Bobby Thompson and I have the privilege of serving as a lead pastor. I pray that today's message would inspire you, it would encourage you, and it would also challenge you in your walk with Christ. Enjoy today's sermon. Well, today we have a, a special guest with us, um, and I'm not going to talk a, a long time uh, because he's going to, and uh, <clears throat> uh, <laughs> we uh, now uh, Pastor Frank uh, Cerisi from University Baptist Church down in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, he is um, he is my uh, one of my spiritual fathers, and as a young man growing up, kind of with no. Uh, direction and no uh, morals. <laughs> uh, I was able to meet Frank and his wife Sissy um, in in Kentucky, and we have stayed tight, stayed friends, and stayed close. And I count their family as the goodness of God in my life. And um, without Frank and Sissy, I am not standing here today. There's no doubt about it. They, uh, God used them to help save my life, and uh, I'm, I'm eternally grateful for who they are, and um, for those of you who are wondering um, why we call our daughter Sissy, it's after Aunt Sissy here, uh, it's not just because she's a sister. <laughs> uh, but uh, anyways, Pastor Frank, one of the, one of the greatest uh, speakers, that's what you wanted me to tell him? One of the greatest pastors? Yeah, okay. Um, he wanted me to tell you that. But uh, no, I mean that. He's one of the greatest um, greatest preachers of the Word of God that I've ever heard. And uh, I know you guys are going to uh, enjoy his Word today. He's going to continue in our series in James chapter 4. All right. So uh, if you guys would, just give Pastor Frank a big welcome here this morning. Well, it's so good to be with you here at City Hope. Um, I feel like I know so many of you already. We uh, have had the opportunity, the privilege to partner with City Hope for the last two youth camps. Um, the students from City Hope have, have joined the students for University Church uh, in Panama City. And uh, this last one was just absolutely incredible. I got to tell you, Pastor Bobby brought a message on Friday night that was so anointed, so inspired by God. We had over 20 students come to know Christ that night. It was just Fire. It was unbelievable how the Spirit of God moved in that setting. And I had two young men that I coach and I've been praying for for really a couple years now that they would come to know Christ. And um, Bobby preached that night and those two guys had the opportunity after that message to take the Word of God and lead them to come to know Jesus as their personal Savior. So it was a really, really awesome gathering at camp. And then uh, just several months ago, we had uh, the two men's groups from University Church and City Hope join together for our men's retreat um, over in Epworth, at Epworth-by-the-Sea um, in Georgia. And uh, we had a wonderful time. I got to meet some really, really cool guys from this church. And some of you guys are here tonight, today, and it's good to see you. And uh, I'm just so honored to be asked to come and hang with you guys for a little bit and open God's Word and share what God's laid on my heart and uh, tell some really good stories about Pastor Bobby. Um, that's really one of the reasons I'm here is just to tell you all the things that you want to know about Pastor Bobby. Now, I will tell you this. Uh, Bobby Thompson, the Lord sent him into my life when he was a, a freshman in high school. And uh, we, we were serving at a little Christian school. It was... Um, 
void of athletic young men, just didn't have a whole lot of them, you know. And uh, when you found an athletic guy and you were a coach there, you were like, oh, God, thank you. <laughs> like, this is a godsend. And this little freshman kid showed up and uh, my friend Rob, I think he's preached here. He's like, you got to see Bobby. He, this kid's athletic, like he can play. And I was just starting a football program at the school. We were, we were just getting started, first varsity season. Um, we spent our first day of practice. I don't, any former football players here? Um, we spent our first day of practice teaching all the kids how to put their pads in their pants and on their. That's that was what the whole first day was. It was bad. Uh, we went one and nine that year, and we beat this Kentucky school for the deaf and blind. That's a true story. <laughs> I promise you, that's not that's not made up. We actually did beat the Kentucky school for the deaf and blind. Um, that was our only win of the season. Um, but um, Bobby shows up, and and Bobby was. Uh, he, you might not know this, Bobby was a heck of an athlete. He was a point guard on our basketball team, and I, I watched him in an open gym during the summer, and I'm like, man, this kid, can he's got some athletic skills, and we don't have anybody that has athletic skills, so um, he's my quarterback. So he never touched a football before in his life, but he became the first quarterback I ever coached, and, and uh, had an incredible high school career, and uh, then went on to play college football a little bit, and then God called him to Bible college, and that's, he came, I'd, by that time, I'd moved to Jacksonville, he came to Bible college there in Jacksonville, and we got to continue our relationship there. And he is my son in the faith. Um, I can't, there's not a single person on this planet I'm more proud of than Bobby Thompson. I got to be honest with you, there's not one person that I'm more proud of, of how God has just shaped and formed him into the man, the husband, the father, the pastor, the man of God that he is today. And um, it's really cool, you might not have ever experienced this, but when the student goes beyond the teacher, it's not a moment of like, oh, no, what am I going to do now? It's like, yes, yes. It feels so good to watch Bobby. He got his doctorate and just, man, what a blessing and planted this church. And I'm just excited to see what God's going to continue to do in his life. When we, when we first met, we started to talk and we realized that we had so much in common. We actually grew up in the same neighborhoods. Um, the same neighborhoods in old Louisville. It's a tough area of Louisville. Um, my dad was a pastor of an inner city church for a little while that he planted. And I lived there for, for quite some time. And then Bobby had grown up in the same area. We, we knew the same spots. We, we had a lot in common. And, and God just kind of really, really um, put us together. It was, it was a God thing. And so it's been, it's been really cool to watch God use him. We've done a lot of things together. We hunted together. Uh, did a lot of hunting. I, I met a guy today that I feel like I shouldn't even be talking about hunting with him in our presence um, because it, it'll be very obvious of what a novice I am in comparison. But um, one time Bobby and I were hunting in Kentucky and, and I was hunting at a, a guy's farm that, that I knew the guy. He didn't know him. And so we were going to hunt and uh, I knock on the door just to let him know we're going to be on his property. I knock on his door. I'm, I'm like, hey man, we're got my, you know, one of my guys with me and, and we're wanting to hunt. And he's like, that's great. He goes, can you do me a favor on your way out? I was like, sure. He goes, I got this old mule in the barn and he's been with me for years. And he's like, he's blind and deaf. And, and, um, he, he's just, he's at a place where we need to do the right thing and put him down. But I've had him since he was, and I just can't do it. Would you mind going out there and putting him down on your way out? I'm like, yeah, I guess so. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm headed out there to put this mule down, and I got to thinking on the way to the car, I'm like, ah, we can have some fun with this. 
So I get in the car and I'm I act like I'm just angry. I'm like, gummit, I can't believe we drove all the way out here. And that guy, we, he told me I can hunt here anytime I want. We wake up early, we drive all the way out here. Now he tells me we can't hunt. He's like, I'm not putting up with this. And I get to the barn, fling the door open, I reach out and I shoot the mule. <laughs> and, and Bobby, I hear bam, bam. And I see Bobby come running past me. He goes, come on, Pastor Frank, I got two of his cows too. <laughs> Now, all the other stories I told you were true. That one's not. That's, that's completely made up. Um, so Bobby told me you guys have been in James chapter 4. And, um, and so I just preached two weeks ago in James chapter 4. And I felt like God really gave me some liberty to preach that. I actually had that sermon set aside to consider preaching here. One of the reasons I hadn't definitely chosen James chapter 4 is because if you've never spoken to a group of people, James is a tough book to open up with. Because James is kind of a, he's a tough guy, right? And I know Pastor Bobby's kind of set this up a little bit. James is, he's the brother of Jesus, but he was very slow to believe Jesus to be the son of God. He, he was very slow to, uh, to really embrace Christianity. He, even then, he couldn't hardly let go of Judaism. The way he talks is very harsh. He's one of those guys that just speaks the truth in an unfiltered uh, un, unhindered. He's just, he just blurts out the truth and he, he really doesn't care who it hurts or, or how, it, how it's received. He just kind of says what he says. And how, how many parents do we have here today? Any, any parents? How many times when, just validate this, these thoughts for me, okay? It is, um, parents are embarrassed. Tell me if you agree with this. Parents are embarrassed when children tell a lie in public. How many people would say, yeah, that's true. I've, that's happened. My kids told a lie in public. I was embarrassed. Here's the second statement. Parents often are more embarrassed when their children tell the truth in public. Isn't that true? Why? Because children, when they say things, they don't really try to couch it in a way that is received well. They, they just say it. James is kind of that way. He kind of has that type of tenor to the things that he says. And so he, he's just one of these guys that just kind of hammers the truth away. He speaks that kind of unfiltered, harsh, in-your-face truth. Who James reminds me of is that old-school football coach, that guy that Bobby thought I was when he first started playing for me, that's kind of harsh and in-your-face. Um, he's one of those people that just pushes and pushes and pushes, and you never feel like you can please them. But in reality, you start to peel back the layers, and you realize that this, this guy just wants the best for me. This guy just sees some, some hope in me. He just sees some potential in me. And what he wants more than anything is for me to be the best I can possibly be. This is a guy who just wants me to reach my full potential. So when we read James this morning, I want you to think about him from that perspective. Here's a guy that just, just wants, wants you and all the readers of this God-inspired book that he wrote, he just wants us all to reach our full potential. He's a little harsh. He's kind of in your face. But he just wants the best for you. Okay? So consider James from that perspective as we look into uh, this passage this morning. By the way, James is not the only person that kind of comes across that way. Jesus actually said in John 10, 10, listen, I didn't just come here for you to have life. I came here for you to have life to the full. And James kind of the same way. I didn't just I'm not just writing this so that good things will will happen in your life. I, I'm writing this so that you have the best possible life you could possibly have. So James chapter four, 
verses 1 through 3. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. When you do ask, you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. So James starts out by talking about the, the infighting that's going on amongst believers that he's writing to. He's saying you guys have a lot of issues with each other. You got problems. There are skirmishes. There, there are all these little, little battles that you guys are having with one another. And then he starts to compare it to real wars. If you look at the original language in this passage, he actually uses the words that you would use when you're talking about literal warfare between military forces. And he says, you guys are, are, are you're just like them. The problem is the reason people have war is because people want what they want and they'll fight like heck to get it. And they don't care who they hurt to get what they want. And you guys are in the same boat. These, these, these wars that happen as a result of tyrants who want to take something that's not theirs is because they're willing to murder for what they covet. And he's saying to, to, to these believers, he's saying, you're, you're, what's going on amongst you is, is coming from that same place. You're willing to do anything to get what you want. And why? Because you want to you have uh, pleasure. You want to spend it on your own pleasure. So here's what he says. He said, you want a, you want a pleasure-filled life, but there's just one problem. You don't even know what brings real pleasure. You want something, but you don't even know what it is to have it. You don't know what brings real pleasure. Now, when you read this passage of Scripture, at first glance, you're going to get the impression that God is opposed to pleasure. You're going to look at this and go, you know what? God just doesn't really want me to have a lot of pleasure in my life. God doesn't want me to be pleased with my life. God kind of wants me to live. And you read this whole passage that we're going to read through, chapter, through verse 10 today. And you're going to, if, you, if you read it wrong, you're going to think that God wants you to have a gloom and doom life with no joy and no pleasure. That's not at all what's happening here. It's just, it's just the way James writes. And what he's saying here is that real pleasure is something that you're not pursuing. You're pursuing Satan's fake form of pleasure. You're pursuing something that's going to bring you a nightmare and not a dream. You see, God is not opposed to pleasure. You say, how do we know this? Well, if you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, to God's original intention for man, you're going to find that all God really wanted from mankind was pleasure. Think about what God did. He put man in a utopian situation. He placed him in a garden. Everything he needed, he had at his fingertips. There were trees that blossomed without their work. When, when, when God called Adam, or Adam to tend the garden, what he was saying was, you just speak these things into existence. God wanted man to have pleasure. He wanted him to have the pleasure of good food. He wanted him to have the pleasure of accomplishment. You're to tend this garden. It's to be yours. This is something that you're to be proud of. The Garden of Eden is under your care. He wanted man to be someone who felt like he accomplished something with his life. He wanted man to have relationship. Adam had the animals come before him and he named them male and female and he named them. And God looked at Adam and he said, something's not good for the very first time. And all that God had created, he said, everything was good and everything was good and everything. 
at the point that he created Adam, he said it's very good. But then when Adam began to be lonely because he saw that animals were male and female, God looked down and said it's not good that man should be alone. And God said, I want you to have relationship. I want you to have a life of pleasure. So I'm going to send you a wife. Do you hear that, husbands? He who findeth a wife findeth a good thing, right? That's what God says. He says, I'm going to give you a wife. And so he gives Adam a wife. Why? Because he wanted him to have a great life. He gave him dominion. Now, this is kind of a, a, a fun part of the sermon. This is, really doesn't go to anything that I'm trying to hammer away as a point of application. But have you ever stopped to think about what our dominion would have looked like if man had not fallen? I didn't realize this until recently, but if you look at what Jesus did when he was clothed in humanity while he was here on this earth, you can know what God meant for us to be able to do before we fell to Satan and to sin. So we were to, you said, what was that dominion like that we were supposed to have in the garden? You remember when Jesus was on earth and the, the disciples had been fishing all night and they hadn't caught anything and Jesus told 153 fish, you guys get in the net. Remember that? Remember when the fig tree... I don't know what it did to hack Jesus off. I can't remember. But Jesus just cursed the fig tree and it just died and withered immediately. That's, that's, how, that's the kind of dominion we were supposed to have. When Jesus needed to cross the water, Jesus told the water. He had such dominion that he told the water that it had to hold his weight. And that, that water had to hold the weight of Jesus. And Jesus walks on the water. Why? He had that kind of dominion over all the elements of this planet. Do you know that you and I were supposed to have that same kind of dominion? That's what happened as a result of the fall. We lost all of those opportunities because we bought into the lies of Satan that this false pleasure was better than the pleasure that God was providing. And so God's intention for us was to enjoy this earth, to have the pleasure that he had intended for us to have. But when the man, when man fell in the garden, he lost his spiritual equilibrium and began to follow his fallen nature in seeking selfish pleasures. And the life that God created for man that was supposed to be a dream ended up as a nightmare. So what is true pleasure now that we are fallen man? What does that look like? Well, we have a little bit of a glimpse of what true pleasure can be. When we see Psalm 37 and verse 4, Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. When I was a senior in high school, I graduated from a Christian school and every senior had to walk across the stage and quote their, their life verse. I walked across the stage and quoted this verse because I completely misunderstood what this verse meant. I thought if I just find joy in the Lord, I'm going to get anything I want for the rest of my life. And then as I got older, it actually didn't take me very long. We had a, a guidance counselor. Her name was Mrs. Ledford. She called me in and she said, Frank, do you know what that verse means? I said, yeah, I know exactly what it means. It means if I do right by God and if I delight in God, I'm going to get anything I want from here on out. She's like, no, that's not what it means at all. I said, well, please tell me what it means. She said, what it means is if you take delight in the Lord, he'll tell your heart what to desire. You'll desire something that your flesh doesn't naturally desire. He will give you what you're supposed to desire. You see, right now we're so fallen, we're so messed up, we desire the wrong things. And here's what happens. You remember when you used to give your children gifts at Christmas time and it was something they'd asked for for six months and they open it up and they look at it for about five minutes and play with it and pull the string or do whatever it does. And then they sit it aside and they spend two and a half hours playing in the box that it came in, in right? 
We're the same way. We don't even know what we want. And that's what James is trying to tell us. Your desires are upside down. You've lost your spiritual equilibrium. You think that you're desiring something that's going to bring you joy and pleasure, but in reality, it's only going to bring you heartache. And yet you're fighting each other and having these skirmishes because you want something that you shouldn't have and you don't need, and it's only going to bring harm to all your relationships. So delight yourself in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 1611, I love this verse. Psalm 1611 says, you reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy and at your right hand are eternal pleasures. God's saying, I got a life for you that you can't really understand right now because you're just thinking through your natural mindset. You're thinking through your natural bent. But there's there's things that I have for you that you don't understand. You're going to kind of see it unfold as we study this. So the path to real pleasure, the path to real pleasure is when we check our will at the door, we check our desires at the door, and instead we take on the desires that God has for our life. Say, what exactly does that look like? Well, remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's getting ready to do what God had planted him on earth to do. He's getting ready to take on the cross. He's getting ready to shed his blood for the sins of humanity to give us the opportunity to be reconciled to the Father. He's about ready to trade his righteousness for our sinfulness. And it's going to be an ugly moment for him. He's got to be brutally murdered on a cross. And Jesus is praying in the garden and he says to God, he says, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, if there's any way, I I really am not excited about the moment when you turn your face from me. I'm not excited about the moment when you pour your wrath out on the sins of humanity because I've taken it into myself I'm really not excited about this. Is there any way we can find another path to reconciliation between humanity and God? Is there any other way? And he pauses and he thinks about God's eternal plan. And he says, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. See, that's exactly the way we're supposed to be living our life. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but thine be done. His will is better than my temporal desires. Then we see in Hebrews 12, too, what Jesus finally said when when all of that was was over. And Jesus says, uh, do you have that verse or do I need to turn to it? I didn't write it down. That's on me, not you. Um, Look at look at Hebrews 12, too. This is pretty quick because it's a couple pages over. Jesus said, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What did he do this for? The joy that was set before him. Not the temporal gain that would come from uh, not having to go through the pain and and embarrassment and shame of the cross. Not the temporal joy, but the, the joy, the eternal joy that was set before him. It made it all worth it. So the path to real pleasure is the same for us as it was for Jesus. Gain real life by giving it away. Gain real life by giving our life away. Did I give you Matthew 6.25? Okay, let's look at that one. Matthew 6.25. Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? So here's truth number one that James wants us to to receive this morning. Truth number one, real pleasure 
is self-sacrifice without any form of self-centeredness. Real pleasure is self-sacrifice without any form of self-centeredness. This was the life Jesus lived. It's the life that he means for us to live while we continue his work here on this planet. You say, is that really satisfying to me? Like just to walk around sacrificing for other people? Is that, does that really give me joy? Does that really give me pleasure to, to actually just sacrifice myself and, and not be self-centered in any way? Well, think about Christmas time. How much joy is there during Christmas time? I mean, wouldn't you say that it's a pretty good spirit during Christmas time? Most people are in a pretty good mood. I and mean, there's a lot of good things going on at Christmas time. What happens at Christmas time that's different than any other time of the year? When I go shopping, I'm not looking for myself. When I go to give to, to, to somebody who, who doesn't have enough, I'm taking from something that, sh- that, that could be mine. That, that money, that whatever it is, and I'm giving it so that someone else can have a good Christmas. And what does it do to me? It gives me joy. It gives me pleasure. That's the thing. God's saying real pleasure is self-sacrifice without any form of self-centeredness. Look, look at the next passage of Scripture here, uh, verses 4 through 7. He says, again, now remember, James is in your face. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? Here's what James is trying to say. He's trying to give us some rules of this relationship that we have with Jesus. Here are the rules to the relationship. Jesus is, God is a jealous God. Jesus is a jealous Savior. Don't cheat on him. If you want to be a friend of the world, you've made yourself an enemy of God. You can't cheat on him. He's jealous for you. He wants you and you alone. He doesn't want you to to long after the ways of the world because God is in opposition to the world. He's saying, if you want to be my friend, you got to choose me over the world. He's jealous. I love how it says the spirit yearns jealously. When I read that, it reminds me of probably... The most jealous moment or season of my life. So I, I graduate high school and I go off to Trinity Baptist College to play basketball and go to Bible college. And uh, I, I get there in July. I get there a little bit early. I want to find a job. I want to get established. And the first Sunday that I'm there, I meet uh, Sissy, who's now my wife. But back then, she was just a really pretty girl at church. And so I meet Sissy. And um, I had some friends that were going to introduce us, and we, we got to know each other, and immediately I was like smitten. I was like, wow, she is everything I've ever wanted. Like, wow. And so I get home. I've only known her two weeks. I see uh, Bobby's basketball coach, my basketball coach, and I tell Coach Bailey I had to go back home after two weeks, and I tell Coach Bailey I've met the girl I'm going to marry. He's like, Frank, you've only been there like two weeks. I said, I know, but I'm just telling you, when you know, you know, and I know. I've met the girl that I'm going to marry. She's everything I've ever looked for in a girl. And so I'm done at that point. I'm not looking at other girls. I'm not trying to go out with other girls. I'm not trying to, you know, I'm done. And so I, I leave and I come back and my friends go, you know, while you were gone, Sissy went out with Larry. I'm like, she did what? Now, in my mind, I had not asked her to be my girlfriend. She had no reason to think she was exclusive to me. But in my mind, it was over. I met, she's going to be my wife. What are you doing going out with another guy? You're going to be my wife. 
And I was eaten up with jealousy. Well, I was I had been recruited to play basketball there. The coach had seen me play. He had offered me a package to come play at Trinity. This there were some other guys who were going to be allowed to try to come onto the team as walk ons. Larry was one of those guys. And I literally and I'm, I'm not I'm not proud of this moment in my life. But I made those moments for Larry a living hell. I just got to tell you, every opportunity I had to make him look bad out there, I made him look bad. Every opportunity I had to foul him a little bit that nobody didn't call it. You know, it was just one of those things where Larry will not succeed if I have anything to do with it. Right. Why? Because she was supposed to be mine. Y'all are probably thinking this guy's weird. (laughs) But yet this other guy had had stepped in and I was jealous James is saying, do you realize that God feels that way about you? Don't be an adulterer or an adulteress. Don't be two-timing God. I'm not saying you're two-timing her. It, was, it wasn't really you. It was, I was over the top with all that. I admit it. So, so he's saying that God is jealous for us. Then he also says that here, here's another rule of this relationship. Your people have to be my people and your enemies have to be my enemies. Can you imagine if if you're married here today and and you you married a woman who had, you know, she's got some people she doesn't get along very well with. And she just there's just tension there. There's animosity. They just don't get along very well. And you tell her, you know, after you just got. Oh, by the way, these people are my best friends. Like we hang out all the time. Like we're, you know. That's going to create a problem in your relationship, isn't it? That's what James is saying. James is saying you can't, listen, you've entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ. You can't pal around with his enemies. His enemies have to be your enemies. His friends have to be your friends. And listen, church, I got to explain this to us today because for many, many years, we were, United States of America was kind of one nation under God, right? A lot of things have changed recently. We're really kind of one nation that's over God, right? It's like, oh, God was a thing of the past, and I don't know if we really want to be connected. Um, several years ago, we had a president who said, you know, we, w- we don't want to consider ourselves a Christian nation anymore. And then we started to tolerate things and say, oh, you know, we got to tolerate all this stuff. And then the stuff that we used to tolerate, think about the speed of which this stuff happened. The stuff we used to tolerate, now we have to celebrate. And God is saying, hey, those of you who are mine, Are you going to celebrate the things that I hate? Are you going to celebrate the things that I'm opposed to? Are your friends, are my friends going to be your friends and my enemies going to be your enemies? Where are you going to stand on all these things? And James is trying to say there's some rules to this relationship with Jesus that you better consider. I was thinking about this and just as I was preparing this sermon several weeks ago, um, I saw a news story that came out. And I don't know if you guys saw this or not. I don't, I, there's some baseball fans here, some uh, Reds fans that I've already met, and uh, some other baseball fans here. Um, but if you follow the Los Angeles Dodgers, you might know that several, uh, just in June, they brought in this group of people to celebrate, to honor as heroes there in L.A. Um, they're called the, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Anybody hear about this story? So they, they bring them in to celebrate these people. And this is what they look like. 
And they are known for their irreverence. They're known uh, for hating God. They're known for making fun of, especially the Catholic Church. Um, they dress up, they're men who dress up as nuns and, and flaunt uh, a lifestyle of indulgence. It, it, it's, it's, it's just something that's, I don't know, it, if you're a friend of God, you're looking at this going, I, I can't align with this and I certainly can't celebrate it. And so I started to think, I wonder what some of those guys, because I know I follow baseball enough to know there's a couple guys on the Dodgers who are pretty outspoken Christian guys. Sammy Kershaw, Blake Trenin. And so I start to look at what are their thoughts on these people coming into the stadium. And by the way, if you'll notice this picture here, not a whole lot of people there to celebrate with the Sisters of Indul as Perpetual Indulgence. Um, but I wondered what these followers of Christ had to say about being a part of a celebration for people who are anti-God. And so I, I did a search and I found that Blake Trenin, who's a pitcher for the Dodgers, this is what he had to say. Do you, do you have that up there? Let me, let me read this to you if you can't see it. He says, I am disappointed to see the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence being honored as heroes at Dodger Stadium. Many of their performances are blasphemous, and their work only displays hate and mockery of Catholics and the Christian faith. I understand that playing base baseball is a privilege and not a right. My convictions in Jesus Christ will always come first. Since I've been with the Dodgers, they have been at the forefront of supporting a wide variety of groups. However, inviting the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence to perform disenfranchises a large community and promotes hate of Christians and people of faith. This single event alienates the fans and supporters of the Dodgers, Major League Baseball, and professional sports. People like baseball for its entertainment value and competition. The fans do not want propaganda or politics forced on them. The debacle with Bud Light and Target should be warning to companies and professional sports to stay true to the brand and leave the propaganda and politics off the field. Now, here's the part I want you to see. I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. I believe the word of God is true. And in Galatians 6, 7, it says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. This group openly mocks Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of my faith. And I want to make it clear that I do not agree with nor, with, nor support the decisions of the Dodgers to honor the sisters of perpetual indulgence. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, Blake Trenin. Here's what Blake Trenin is saying unashamedly. I'm in a relationship with Jesus Christ. His friends are my friends. His enemies are my enemies. I will not stand and support those who mock my Savior. I have to choose a side. James is saying, you want to be in a relationship, you got to choose a side. He's kind of in your face with the way he does it, but this is what he's saying. Now, look at verse 6. This is what I love. This is how God is. Even when we're unfaithful, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he said, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Here's what James says. Adulterers, adulteresses, he's really harsh. Then he goes, but listen, even when you're unfaithful, God offers you grace. If you're humble and you admit that you've been unfaithful, God offers you grace because that's how he's made. He wants to give you grace. He wants to love you. He wants to have a relationship with you. Then verse seven, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I want to take just a second to tell you that the order of this is very important. A lot of people in their Christian walk wonder why they can't have success against the plans and strategies of Satan. 
They wonder why they can't resist temptation. They wonder why Satan seems to run amok just through their life and destroy so many elements of, who, of what they're trying to accomplish, who they're trying to be. And they wonder why. And I think part of the reason why is because of the order of what we see in verse 7. A lot of people try to resist the devil before they submit to God. And it can't work that way. You can't resist the devil. You don't have it in you to resist the devil unless you first submitted to God. And most of the time we try on our own strength to go, no, Satan, by my strong will, I'm going to make sure that you don't have success in my life. And God's going, you can't do it without me. You submit to God, then you can resist the devil. So good point here, I think, that James makes uh, as, as he teaches us a little bit how we can reach our full potential. So truth number one, real pleasure is self-sacrifice without any form of self-centeredness. Truth number two, real friendship is fidelity without any form of flirtation. And then truth number three, real repentance is purification without any form of pretense. Look at verses eight through ten. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. I want you to first notice the elements of repentance here in this passage. He says cleanse. Cleanse, purify, lament, mourn, weep. And humble yourself. These are the elements of repentance. Repentance says that I'm not just saying based on my own will that I'm going to say no to the things I had been saying yes to. It says that I'm going to go through a process. I'm going to cleanse myself. What do you cleanse yourself with? A, a cleansing agent. He's, he's saying if, if you want to be successful against the ways and strategies and plans of Satan, you can't just decide you're going to do it. There's some things that you got to take on. There's some cleansing agents that you got to take on. In other words, you got to put more God in your life than the world in your life. You got to get in the Word of God. You got you to come in contact with the Spirit of God. If that's by every now and then, and I listen to sports talk radio almost exclusively when I travel, but every now and then, I just, I want to hear a word from God. And you know what? Some of those songs that we sing here in church that pierce our heart and make us think about the goodness of God like we did this morning, those are playing on the radio. And we can turn that channel every now and then and go, you know what? I just need a little cleansing, a little purification as I ride here down the road. And I think I'm going to go to that channel for a few minutes and, and see if I can't cleanse and purify and get some of the yuck of the world off of me. So he says, you need to cleanse, you need to purify, you need to lament and mourn and weep. But then he goes on to say, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, this is a weird mixture of emotions. Do, do you see this in here? He's talking about laughter and gloom and joy and, and he, weeping. And it's a very weird mixture of emotions here. What is James trying to tell us? What is it that, he, that he's trying to, to, to make... Um, to make sense of in this passage, I think, I think, and this is just one man's commentary of Scripture, okay? I think that what James is saying is, quit trying to fake it. Quit trying to laugh your way through it. 
Let your laughter, if, if, if you're in a place where you have been unfaithful to God, where you have been more connected to the world than you are God, where you've made his enemies your friends, stop trying to fake it till you make it. Now, I wrote this down. It, it just kind of hit me. It says those who try to fake it till they make it will eventually become perpetual phonies. Those who try to fake it till they make it will eventually become perpetual phonies. What you'll do is you'll learn how to act. Man, I'll just, I'll just paint this smile on my face and I'll walk into church and act like everything's okay. And on the inside, I'm falling apart. My walk with God is not anything like it used to be. I'm laughing. Yeah, everything's great. But on the inside, I'm a mess. Don't try to mask it. Don't try to escape it. Don't try to act your way through it. This just leads to exhaustion and then eventually to iniquity. Say, Pastor Frank, what is iniquity? The word iniquity means to bend. We hear about sins and transgressions and all of these things. The word iniquity means to bend. Iniquity means that I have actually bent the truth of God's word to favor what I want. And that's what will happen. If you laugh your way through those moments when you should be weeping and mourning and repenting, and you go, oh, I'll just paint this smile on my face and I'll let everybody think everything's good. God says that, uh, that's going to lead to exhaustion and it's going to lead to iniquity to where you'll finally make it okay to do the thing that God said you shouldn't do. And in your own mind, you're going to be okay. But in God's eyes, you're unfaithful. You're, in, you, you're living in infidelity. He says, don't try to mask it. Don't try to lift yourself. Here's what he's saying. At the end, he says, God will lift you up. Don't try to lift yourself up. Don't try to lift yourself up past the things that are, that are bothering you. Don't, don't try to go, hey, I'll just, I'll just smile through it. I'll just. No, don't try to lift yourself up. Here's what James is saying, because he's this kind of guy. He's like, stop fooling yourself. Stop it. He's saying, here's what you do. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And he will, he will lift you up. See, what James is trying to say here is that we can live this life that God's intended for us to live. We can reach our full potential. It's not an easy path. It's a difficult path. We have to make God's pleasures our pleasures. The desires that we have are the ones that he's given us. And in order to make his pleasures our pleasures, we have to get to a place where we are willing to sacrifice ourselves without any form of, of, of self-centeredness. We have to choose. We have to decide if we're going to be in this relationship with Jesus Christ, we have to be faithful to him. We got to choose that real friendship is fidelity without any form of flirtation. And then we have to, when we don't do it right, we got to remember that God gives grace to the humble. Don't try to fake it. Don't try to paint on a smile. Just say, God, I got to do business with you. I got to get my life back in order. Purify, cleanse. James says, if you'll do these things, every one of us can reach our full potential. You're fallen. I'm fallen. We all trip. We all fall. We all are unfaithful to God at times. I don't know about you, but we we're singing that song a few minutes ago about the goodness of God. That that portion where he says, all my life, you have been faithful. 
I don't know what goes through your mind when you sing that, but a lot of times what goes through my mind is how many times have I been unfaithful? Why are you so faithful to me? Here's the thing. God gives grace. Just humble yourself. Don't try to fake it. Just let God have his way. Can we pray together? Father, we ask you now in the name of Jesus to give us ears to hear. Help us to understand what James is trying to to say to us. That there are pleasures that are eternal pleasures. They're they're real. There There is this life to the full that we can live. But it takes a great deal of intentionality. It takes a great deal of us choosing that we're going to be faithful to you just as you've been faithful to us. So, God, I pray you'll give us strength to walk in your ways. Help us to become fully devoted followers of your son and our savior, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in with us today. We would love to connect with you. And the best way to do that is through social media or go straight to our website. God bless you and have a wonderful day.